The roots of the environmental movement, very few people have written about this subject. I'm the one guy who certainly has. I did it in both my books, Climate Gate, a veteran meteorologist exposes the global warming scam, and Eco-Tyranny, how the left's green agenda will dismantle America. I'm Brian Sussman. Thanks for joining me. This is the Brian Sussman Show podcast, Faith, Family, Freedom. I'm going to cover a lot of ground in this podcast, and it's something that needs to be done, again, because you're not going to get this from the mainstream media complex. You won't even get this from alternative sources, because unless they've read my books, quite frankly, they're unaware of this. The story starts with this. This is why I got into this topic today. There are major new, well, a major news outlet, the Associated Press announced this week that it has secured funding from several progressive interest groups to hire two dozen climate change reporters. Now, according to the AP's executive editor, Julie Pace, quote, this far-reaching initiative will transform how we cover the climate story. The five organizations that are giving $8 million in total are the William and Florida Hewlett Foundation, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, the Rockefeller Foundation, Quadrivium, and the Walton Family Foundation. These are all well-known, left-wing, pushing, Democrat political causes. Those are the foundations. Now, let me break this down. When you have an executive editor from the Associated Press saying, This far-reaching initiative, in other words, $20 million from these organizations to hire 20 climate change reporters. Right off the bat, there's an agenda. These reporters have been tapped. why, Why is this happening? It's because the climate change, the anthropogenic climate change mantra, In other words, the whole idea, anthropogenic, human-caused climate change, isn't resonating with people. People are looking at the weather presently around the world, and yes, it's extreme in some locations and not so extreme in others. That's weather, and that's a normal climate situation. In other words, people aren't getting rocked by climate changing and scared as a result thereof. There haven't been a lot of hurricanes in recent years. So people aren't blaming hurricanes on global warming or climate change. There haven't been an extraordinary number of tornadoes. So you can't blame tornadoes on global warming or climate change. You look around the world and what's happening is something that people are used to seeing at least periodically. So the whole idea that the climate is changing and we need to do something about it now is going by the wayside. People are more worried about other things. So the Associated Press is going to hire 20 journalists, quote unquote journalists, to go out there and cover this story and get it out there into as many publications as possible to keep it in the news, keep it fresh, scare people if possible. 
So that's what's happening. Major news outlets. And again, all of these organizations giving this $8 million are left-wing organizations. Now, what happens right off the bat when you get this executive editor, Julie Pace from the Associated Press saying this far-reaching initiative will transform how we cover the climate story, that tells you right off the bat their editorial position is there is climate change, it's caused by humans, we got to report on it. This isn't going to be an open-minded group coming forward to look at the facts. Now, I could go through the facts with you and perhaps I will. But what really interests me at this point in time is to share with you the roots, the roots of the whole climate change movement. And to do that, I go to my book, Eco-Tyranny. This goes back to Karl Marx and his writing partner, Frederick Engels. This is super, super important for you to know. By the way, pollution has never been Earth's most troubling foe. Marxism has. The Marxists have always seized upon pollution, this is true, both real and imagined, as an effective weapon in their unrelenting war on freedom. Now, hold tight, because I'm going to tell you how this climate change, human-caused climate change, is as old as modern communism. First of all, you have the laws of transformation. Now, this is something that was created uh, by Marx and Engels. It confirmed an elite status within the human race. In other words, those born into evolution's aristocracy possess a duty to dictate how the underdeveloped shall live. The laws of matter. So committed Marxists and committed elitists and I, you can meet these people all over the Silicon Valley. They've graduated from the top colleges. They work at the top companies. They are convinced that there are some people who have ran, who've been randomly spit out of their mother's womb with a better brain than most. And they happen to be cut from that cloth. They have better brains. And those with the best brains have a Darwinian authority to rule over those with the lesser brains, lest those with the deficient brains destroy the planet and kill one another. Thus, there's a need for a heavy-handed form of government, loaded with burdensome regulations, and the perfect excuse for socialism, and communism, and fascism. Now, that's, that's on page five of Eco-Tyranny. I get into it right off the bat. You see, Marxists believe they have the power to define all societal morality and rules and laws subject to their goals. Subject to their goals. Now, let's continue. I want to talk a little bit about some of the early, early travelers, fellow travelers of Karl Marx and, and uh, Frederick Engels. Let's go to 1862. 1862. This was an academic colleague of Marx. He's a German chemist, Justus von Liebig. He published a version of an otherwise boring book that he wrote 22 years earlier. It's an updated version. The boring book was entitled Organic Chemistry and its Application to Agriculture and Physiology. In the new edition, in the new edition, well, it was unique because for the first time, a scientist used his lectern 
to create an environmental argument to attack capitalism. 1862. Use the environment to attack communism. So that was the first particular issue. And it, it involved guano, by the way. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a hilarious story. But it involved guano. <laughs> and, and Liebig, von Liebig, felt that guano hunters were destroying nature while collecting deposits of organic material. And he contended that the greedy guano traders were taking advantage of underpaid workers in order to turn a profit. And third, he was angered that the crops that benefited from the guano were growing at a rate that he believed superseded nature's intention. In other words, the guano was being used as fertilizer and it increased yields, which was good for everybody. But he saw it as a bad thing because he said, if this will continue, people have better food and more plentiful food. And they're going to live longer and healthier lives. And they will have larger families. And he said this is a great, quote, robbery system. Because more food will be necessary to sustain, sustain these larger families. And a teeming population and additional animals meant more excrement and pollution. He saw the planet as having enough people, didn't need any more, couldn't handle any more. And it was the result of guano, the fertilizer. That was the first environmental crisis, 1862. And by the way, von Liebig, like Marx, and like so many of the environmental groups today, which are cut basically from the same cloth, von Liebig was convinced that such natural resources did not belong to man and only could be used for the absolute common good. In other words, water, but certainly not too much. Let me move from Marx and von Liebig to another guy. This is Sir Edwin Ray Lancaster. He was a zoologist at the University College in London. He was noted as the greatest Darwinist of his generation. Lancaster was a frequent guest in Marx's personal household during the last few years of Mark's life. He even attended his funeral. Not too many people did attend Mark's funeral, by the way. He wasn't uh, a guy that had a lot of friends. But Lancaster was one of his friends. Lancaster was the most eco-socialist thinker of his time. He wrote powerful papers on species extinction due to human causes with an urgency that would not be found again until later in the 20th century. Lancaster's most popular screed was Nature and Man, in which he described humans as the insurgent sons of nature. So you have von Liebig, who was angry at humans for culling guano to use as fertilizer to grow their crops, to now Lancaster, who described humans as insurgent sons of nature. Here's what he said. We may indeed compare civilized man to a successful rebel against nature who by every step forward renders himself liable to greater and greater, greater and greater penalties. So you had von Liebig and now you've got Lancaster, both basically disciples of Karl Marx. Lancaster's star pupil was a guy named Arthur Tainsley. He was noted for coining the term ecosystem. So 
a second generation disciple of Marx coined the term ecosystem. Tainsley was deeply concerned with the destructive human activities of the modern world. He said ecology must be applied to conditions brought about by human activity. So again, Tainsley says, okay, here's the deal. Humanity's destruction of, of the earth, the atmosphere, and, and that could be anything from guano and other forms of fertilizer to just simply building a dam for water storage, was ruining the ecology and it was destructive to the modern world. Now, Tainsley, Tainsley had a young protege named Charles Elton who worked with him to further develop the ecosystem concept. And Elton had a fiery writing style and he set the stage for the coming generation of eco-authors. In a blazing 1958 condemnation of the use of pesticides, for example, Elton declared that this astonishing rain of death upon so much of the world's surface was largely unnecessary and threatened the very delicately organized interlocking systems of the populations in the ecosystem. So you go from Karl Marx to Charles Elton. Yes, I guess they did see the earth as their mother, and they certainly saw humans as being the bastard child of the entire planet. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Lenin began to engross himself in, gross himself in the works of Marx. So Lenin became the first Marxist to actually run a country, in this particular case, Russia before he ever became the dictator of Russia, you know, the, the party chairman in 1918, uh, he wrote a lot of papers, lengthy papers on the environment and how humans were responsible for, let me take that back, how capitalists were responsible for destroying the environment. When he became the party chairman in 1918, he issued a mandate entitled Decree on Land. And in it, in it, listen to this. I mean, this guy was as green as green could be but he was also had that red underbelly, if you will. It declared all forests, waters, and minerals to be property of the state. That's just what the environmentalists of today wish. They would like, in fact, for all the property in the United States to be under their control. You see, you must understand the green agenda from guano to global warming or climate change isn't about celebrating the beauty of our planet. It's an assault on mankind. It's an agenda that has no regards for your needs, your lifestyle, your dreams, your desires, or your feelings. Now, environmentalist activists are dogmatic people. They are ideological radicals hell-bent on transforming society into a colossal, highly regulated redistributive commune void of inalienable rights. Their lack of integrity enables them to look you, yeah, you, straight in the eye and lie about the facts while they spin out tailor-made, cherry-picked research, quote-unquote, supposedly proving their many fictitious claims regarding the state of the global ecosystem. 
The primary goal, the primary goal of the green agenda is not a pristine environment. It's about gaining absolute control over your life. So when I read this story this week about the Associated Press getting these, this new band of eco-warriors who are going to be out there doing journalism, friends, listen to me. Listen to me, please. I have a moral compass. As a Christian man, I have a moral compass. I'm not going to lie about this stuff. They don't share the same moral compass. So for them, lying is a means to an end. They don't care. If they can get away with it, they will. That's how they operate. Certainly one of the most popular books ever written, and therefore ever read, on the environment was Paul Ehrlich's Population Bomb, 1968. I don't know, Paul's an old guy now, but he was a professor emeritus at Stanford for the longest time. 1968 Population Bomb. Authored many best-selling social engineering books, but Population Bomb was the first big hit. It was, I think it was bigger than Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. But Population Bomb, just like Carson's Silent Spring, was, was read and it was, it was required reading in many public schools in the early 70s, in which Ehrlich falsely proclaimed, listen to this, the battle to feed humanity is over. In the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. This is what he said in 68. 70s and 80s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death, despite whatever we can do right now. Again, it's a lie. And it was lapped up by the left. And to this day, they regard this guy as, you know, the, the, the green guru of all times. And what did Erdlich also say? He also long, he, forever he opined that the earth is being forced to support too many people who require too many resources and who produce too much pollution. Look, I, I could go through the statistics with you. I've got both my books before me. And the bottom line is, in terms of, in terms of global warming, uh, prove it. There, there has been none. In fact, if I were just to look at these thermometers, the oldest... Th the best temperature record on the planet is here in the United States. Uh, temperature records, for example, around Europe and other parts of the world were, were, were destroyed by way of wars, but not here in the United States. We've got the best temperature records on the planet. Again, we're, we're only, you know, one slice of North America, but, but if you look at the original thermometers and the original thermometer locations, and the, those original lo and those records from those original locations, and they're plentiful throughout the United States. I'm not talking about thermometers that have been put in place since the 90s and 2000s, etc. I'm talking about the old ones. Do you realize that since the 1930s, which, by the way, were the hottest decade on record, hottest decade that we have on our record, not just in the in in the north in North America, but around the world, you see similar things. 1930s were blazing hot. Ever since the 1930s, the temperature has been cooling. Okay, well they can't wrap their arms around that. I, I contend that's why a new series of 
of temperature gauges had to be in place to extinguish that record. And when you look, and I have this in my book, Climate Gate, when you look at some of these locations where these, oh gosh, where you look, where the, these new thermometers have been placed. <laughs> uh, my favorite one was South Lake Tahoe. They had a, a temperature record-keeping thermometer a place next to uh, what was called a burn bin. It's where they would occasionally burn trash in a 55-gallon drum. You'd see others placed next to uh, placed next to air conditioning HVAC units on top of roofs. Some out in the middle of a tarmac of an airport. Come on, man. So again, I could look at the records with you and it just doesn't square. I mean, the hottest weather ever. Give me a break. Um, we've only possessed, by the way, to precisely measure the temperature with thermometers since the early 1800s. The world's thermometers have been installed. Most of the world's thermometers have been installed, as I mentioned, since the 1980s, including well over a thousand in the United States. But again, when you look at the early temperature record, <laughs> nothing to worry about here, folks. Please, please move on. Also, reporting stations are omitted. When they take the, the global temperature, Reporting stations are omitted in higher latitudes where it's colder. Higher elevations where it's colder. Rural locations away from the artificial warming found in cities. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration collects data from only 35 sites in Canada. That's down from 600 in the 70s. Globally, reporting stations in the Andes Mountains in Bolivia have been omitted from the record. Why? Too cold. Only 25% of Russia's reporting stations are included in the global temperature calculations. Why? You know, we could take a real accurate reading of the, of the Earth's temperature on a daily basis, weekly, monthly, annual basis, if we would just use satellite data, but they don't allow us to do that. And when they do, the data is tweaked to fit their narrative. Okay, what, what, is a, what is a person of faith supposed to do here? What is a person of faith supposed to do? Uh, first, first, some really and truly believe greenhouse gas emissions are causing climate change. Okay, if, if that's you, okay. We can have that debate if you would like. But if that's where you stand, I'm not going to hate you for it, okay? You may hate me because of my, my position on global warming. I don't hate you. Second, second, many within the environmental movement are obsessed with protect, protecting Mother Earth, and they'll use any argument to accomplish that goal, no matter how biased or unbalanced it is. You know what? I still love you. You may hate me. I still love you. I think you're wrong. I think you're off base, but I can still love you. I can sit down and break bread with you. I don't have a problem with that. Third, some promote the climate change mentality for financial gain. Absolutely. Because it brings money into their organization's coffers. Others are absolute Marxists who do this for absolute control. And I hate what you're doing. But, but, I'm still praying for you. So, how should a Christian view climate change? Well, we should, we should be skeptical. We should be critical. We should look at it biblically. And what does the Bible say about climate change? 
Not much. Likely the closest biblical examples of what could be considered climate change would be the end times and the disasters prophesied in, say, Revelation 6 through 18, for that matter. Now, these prophecies have nothing to do with greenhouse gas emissions. They're the result of the wrath of God. Also, as a Christian, you must remember that God is in control and this world is not our home. It's temporary. One day, this entire current universe is going to be erased, 2 Peter chapter 3, and replaced with a new heavens and a new earth, Revelation 21, Revelation 22. How much effort should be made saving the planet? It's a planet that's eventually going to be obliterated and replaced with a new planet. Friends, my heart is to equip my brothers and sisters in Jesus my heart is to equip them, to encourage them, and to help them evangelize and share the good news of their salvation with others. Is there anything wrong with going green? No, if you, you want to go green, that's fine. Let's try to reduce your carbon footprint a good thing. If it floats your boat, go right ahead, but just don't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me that your Tesla is a carbon neutral vehicle. No, it's a carbon redistribution vehicle. When I look at all the carbon that was involved in culling and mining the minerals for those batteries and then transporting that material from China to the United States and then trucking it to a factory where it can be fashioned into a battery. And when I look at how much carbon dioxide was emitted building the, the, the physical structure of your Tesla. Th don't tell me that's carbon neutral. <laughs> and, we, and when you plug it in, and most of the energy is coming from natural gas, no. But if you want to drive the Tesla, fine. Can I tell you something? Those cars are rocket ships. I, li I really like fast cars. I can tell you about my car. But my car is not as fast as a Tesla. <laughs> I will just say. So you want to be green, that's fine. Just don't, don't lecture me, please, because I've done my homework on this. But at the same time, I love you. I can break bread with you. I will pray for you. And I hope you feel the same way about me. What we do know for certain is God is good. He's sovereign. And that planet Earth will be our habitat for as long as he desires. I'm going to close out with Psalm 46, verses 2 and 3. Therefore, are you ready for this, friends? Therefore, we will not fear... Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, we're in the hands of God. He's in control. My friends, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, please tell others about this podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm now on uh, Instagram. Back on. Uh, sorry. To, to trying to get the word out that I'm there in order to promote this show. I'm on Telegram as well, Brian Sussman Show for both of those. And of course, my website, briansussman.com. God bless you, my friends. Until next time, have a great one.